a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. This is episode 70, and as you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance broadcaster in the process of relocating from South Dakota to the Twin Cities. The Say the Damn Score podcast is dedicated to the sportscasting industry and sharing stories and advice from sportscasters around the country. I've joked over the last few weeks that I've been both homeless and unemployed as we transition to the Twin Cities, but I'm happy to say that at least the homeless part is about to end. I'm recording this on July 25th, and we close on a townhome in the Minneapolis suburbs on July 30th. We've either been out of the country or staying with friends for almost two months, and both my wife Sarah and I are ready to end our nomadic lifestyle. The Say the Damn Score studio today is again at my brother-in-law's house in Mankato, Minnesota, and there will most likely be one more recorded here before we move in. But things personally for me are moving in a positive direction, and I just thought I would share that with everybody in the audience. Anyway, the guest today has a truly fascinating story. I'm happy to be joined by Paul Leffler, the voice of Fresno State football, basketball, and baseball, as well as the voice of the national broadcast of the Scripps Spelling Bee. Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, doing fantastic, Logan. Another day with the sun shining. Who's going to complain? Nobody. That is uh, for certain. So you're out in Las Vegas right now for Mountain West Media Days, and... I always see, you know, different broadcasters this time of year going to Conference X Media Days. What goes on from a broadcaster's perspective at those events? Well, you're interviewing pretty much every coach in the conference and a couple of student athletes from every football team in the conference. And I think it's a great chance to do some preparation. Not only are you providing fresh content for your station, in my case, or flagship that airs Fresno State games, but also I think you're digging up some details that you can use in a broadcast later in the year, and you get a feel for the personality of the coaches, how they're wired, how confident they are, what kind of body language they have, some of their background stories that maybe you wouldn't hear otherwise, wouldn't read somewhere, and I think the challenge is to come up with fresh and unique questions that aren't just going to make them yawn and roll their eyes, and uh, it helps if you get them early in the day before everybody else has asked their questions. But I think it's also a good time from a broadcaster's perspective to connect with some of the other guys in the league who do the same thing, uh, see some familiar faces, talk to some national college football folks, and uh, just kind of rev your engines for the season that's around the corner. And with the season being around the corner, we all know that you know networking is the lifeblood of this of this industry, expand a little bit on some of the relationships you're able to build with people through media days. Well, yeah, I think there are some people you meet for the first time. And I think in go, engaging with coaches on a personal level uh, helps a little bit, helps you understand a lot. So that's one of the things I enjoy is getting to know those coaches a little better. 
And yeah, I've been blessed to have a, a partner on the football games in Pat Hill, who is extremely well connected in football and well respected. And I figured that out before we started doing radio together. We did uh, a few national assignments together and seeing coaches who'd never met him before and how much they respected him. Uh, it was really an eye opener. So anywhere we go with Pat, everybody who we're talking to it just loves him and attaches to him. And, and it helps me get some more insight on these coaches, too. So that's helped me get to know the coaches in this conference. You know, as far as a broadcasting perspective, you get to know these guys during the season. You know, I try to have the opposing teams play by play voice on our extended pregame show every week in football season. And you get to know them that way. I think a real good opportunity with the media day idea is to get to know the people from the conference better, you know, from the commissioner on down. These are folks who you're going to rely on all season long for information, for dealing with difficult subjects. And if you have a personal connection with them and they know you and they trust you and they think highly of you, it's going to be a little more comfortable and easier for you in those situations to deal with them. So uh, and we're fortunate in the Mountain West Conference to have a, a whole lot of quality people at that Mountain West office in Colorado Springs. And this deal in Vegas each year, I think, just gives you a chance to get to know them better, too. So I read a story that you told your father that uh, the San Francisco 49ers broadcaster was wrong on some information when you were very, very young, like 10 or 12, and that he said, if you think you can do it better, you should be a broadcaster. And from that point on, your path was towards being a broadcaster. Well, that's pretty much true. Yeah, I was about 12 years old, and I do have to make one note. It wasn't the 49ers broadcaster who at the time on the radio was the great Lon Simmons, a Hall of Famer, tremendous man, gentleman I got to know a little better later on, and actually uh, recorded an episode of my World War II show with Lon because he served during the war before becoming a a great announcer. Um, So it wasn't Lon Simmons who did a great job of radio play-by-play. It was a a network TV game of the 49ers, and that national announcer said something about my team. And in righteous indignation, I said, hey, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And after my dad got done laughing, yeah, he did say, well, if you think you can do better, you ought to be a sports announcer. And I don't think I'd ever even considered that possibility that you could do that. So he said, get on your bike. And I said, what does my bike have to do with being a sports announcer? So uh, we get on our bikes, and this is a small town in California, Los Banas, about the time, maybe 12,000 people there. We ride our bike a few blocks away, a gentleman by the name of Richard Rose, who did all the PA announcing in town, and my dad asked him if I could tag along a little bit. He said, yeah, be there Saturday night, bring your binoculars. So I spotted for him for a couple weeks, and then he pawned off some Pop Warner games on me. And I I started announcing the, the PA of Pop Warner football at 12. And uh, there's kind of a funny story that goes along with that, too. Well, if there's a funny story, we might as well have you tell it. You know, that's that's a good hosting there, Logan. That's a good follow-up. <laughs> I always tell people ask me for advice about interviewing or, or being a good talk show host or anything like that. I said, it's more about listening than it is asking. And the best questions are always follow-up questions. And sometimes if you're not listening, those things go right back to you. So you're, you're jumping on that one and I'll... I'll throw that at you. Uh, 12 years old, announcing Pop Warner football. You get done with the first age group, getting ready for the second age group. And this guy comes marching up to a little tiny press box at Lofton Stadium in Los Banos, California. He opens up the door, looks inside. There's only four or five of us in there. 
And he looks at every face in the room and then just gets this really perplexed expression on his face. And he says, well, I don't know where she went, but when that girl gets back, tell her she's doing a great job announcing the game. And boy, you talk about never forgetting something. I'll never forget that moment. And, and of course, as a 12-year-old boy, I was greatly insulted to have been called female, but my voice hadn't changed yet. And some would argue it still hasn't changed all that much. <laughs> well, I suppose if you could learn to take that type of criticism at 12, you're uh, ready for the Mountain West at uh, your age now. So that that is a fun story. Did you always know from that point on that you wanted to be a sports broadcaster or did you go through different uh, different ideas of what you wanted to do as a professional for your career? You know, it, it did kind of always stick with me. I love sports. I played every sport my parents would let me play basketball and baseball in high school. They wouldn't let me play football. And, and I look back on that, and I, I'm a big believer. If there's anything that I've learned in life, it's that God's plans are always better than my plans. And you know, one of those first instances was my parents not letting me play in football. I, I never would have discovered this chance to announce football. And by my senior year in high school, they let me announce the, the local games on the radio, which was a blast. And somebody in town said, hey, you ought to look at Syracuse University and all the broadcasters they've produced. And I did. And I did. And that was the only school I applied to. I go all the way across the country and had a great experience and met a lot of neat people. And, and you talk about networking, and that's the number one thing they'll tell you at the Newhouse School of Public Communications, as Professor Rick Wright used to always say, uh, they'll say it is about network. It's about the people that you know and the connections that you make. And they also teach you a lot of good things. So I had some folks who thought I should be a doctor or go into math or you know do this or that. But yeah, I think that's where my heart was. And as I've progressed along the path, I've seen time and time again that God's plans are better than my plans. And my ideas of how it might work out weren't exactly the way it went but I was more satisfied with the way it ultimately turned out. At Syracuse, you were fortunate to, by the research I did, what looked like a small group lunch with Marty Glickman, the legendary New York broadcaster, where you were able to kind of pick his brain. And what did you learn from that experience in that lunch? Wow, that, that's some deep research there, Logan. Nicely, nicely pegged. For. Yes, that was a, a real neat situation and a blessing. Dean Rubin, David Rubin, was the dean of the Newhouse School at the time, and he invited a couple guys from each radio station on campus. And interesting about that is you asked that, I think back, and all four of those guys are still in the industry, which at Syracuse, you get a lot of people who think sportscasting is where they want to go. I have a lot of classmates from that program who are highly successful in other areas now as lawyers, as you know, political folks uh, as all kinds of things in our society. But all four of those guys are still working in sports. One of them is Matt Park, who's the voice of the Orange. Another guy is Phil Shaner, who, who's done a great job with television in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then John Bloom, who does a lot of radio work in uh, the Arizona area in Phoenix and is uh, currently the D-League voice for the Phoenix Suns organization. So all four of us had that privilege of sitting down with the great Marty Glickman. And he was up in age. He'd just written a book, which is a great read, by the way, The Fastest Kid on the Block. And it tells the story of his track exploits, how he was uh, kept out of prime position in the 1936 Olympics because of anti-Semitism, how uh, he, he progressed through Syracuse University as a star athlete 
and really, I think maybe young broadcasters today have no idea about this, but Marty created a lot of the lexicon that basketball broadcasters use. Court description, when you talk about the key, that came from Marty Glickman. A lot of things that you hear in radio basketball play-by-play, it's because Marty Glickman had to go where no announcer had gone before. And so to sit down with him and hear some of his stories and see how sincere he was about sharing that. And I've heard since then how he did the same thing with a lot of young announcers in New York. He'd go to Fordham. He'd teach classes there. Um, He really had a heart for people coming up and coming through the industry. And you could see that in that lunch. And uh, I'll never forget one of the the things that he said. He talked a lot about uh, describing what you see and, and you know, making sure that people are getting a visual as they listen on the radio from the build that a player has to what his hair looks like to all those fine details. And that was great advice. But he also said, you know, whether you're doing the Super Bowl or the Marbles Championship, which he did, or the National Spelling Bee, uh, you've got to bring the same attention to detail and preparation that you would in any of those events. And I thought that was great advice, and and I I get kind of a chuckle now thinking back that at the time I thought, yeah, you know, the National Spelling Bee would be a pretty cool assignment. And uh, I didn't think that I'd have the privilege of working with all the great people on that show over the years. But Marty Glickman made a strong impression, I'm sure not just on me, but on countless Syracuse University students over the years. How did you get into doing the Spelling Bee? Because that's one of the things that I certainly have on my list of things to talk about. It's a little out of order, but it's a podcast, so we do what we want. Uh, how did you get into doing the Spelling Bee broadcast on ESPN? Well, my theory is that I, I must have been the only former Spelling Bee competitor on television anywhere, and, and that that must be the, the Venn diagram. I was the only intersection, is my guess, but uh, it was a neat thing. It's another one of those instances where I say God's plans were better than my plans, I was doing local television in Fresno, had some chances to maybe move up to a bigger market and uh, didn't want to leave our family in the area. My wife's family was there. My family was there and uh, you know, passed on some opportunities. And I remember praying, you know, God, if you want to put me on this kind of stage, then uh, do it your way. And, you know, lo and behold, 2006, I get this call out of the blue, a great guy by the name of Bob Toms. And he, he says, Paul, my name's Bob. I uh, produce Monday Night Football and Wide World of Sports and Indy 500 and all these things I've watched on TV for years. And he says, and uh, we're going to put the National Spelling Bee in prime time on ABC this year. Robin Roberts is our host, but we need uh, a former Spelling Bee person to be the analyst. And we heard you might be good. And Logan, I think I was silent for probably about five minutes. That's what it felt like, because in my head, I'm trying to think, which one of my old college roommates is totally trying to prank me right now? There's, there's no way. Uh, but it was legit. And uh, Bob was great to work with. And, and so many tremendous people I've been blessed to work with on that show over more than a decade. A couple of them who are still doing it every year. But in front of the camera and behind the camera, it was really an eye opener for me to work with people who are really, really good at what they do and who brought that kind of passion that Marty Glickman described. You know, Regardless of your assignment, approach it the same way. And uh, on top of that, it's just fun to see those students year in, year out. They get more and more amazing in what they're able to do and the the vast array of knowledge that they have inside their heads. Uh, and I'll tell you this, Logan, I mean, I, I've been privileged to call some some pretty exciting ball games, but the, the energy and the tension 
Uh, and the intensity in the room, when you get down to two spellers of the National Spelling Bee, uh, it's hard to beat that. It's hard to find something more intense than those few moments. You said, I must have missed this doing research, you said you were, as a kid, you were part of the Spelling Bee, right? Yes. My, uh, my eighth grade year, I won a, a regional qualifying bee to make it to Washington. And thankfully, that was before it was broadcast on national TV. Although a few years into my assignment there, somebody dug up an old video clip of me, not at the microphone, but sitting in the competitor pool on stage. And they surprised me with it on one of the broadcasts. Uh, <laughs> but thankfully, you don't hear that, uh, that voice I was talking about a little bit and giggle about it. Uh, we can still do that to Derek Carr, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, I was in it in 1990, and uh, the way they calculate it now, I finished tied for 13th place. Do you remember the word that got you? You never forget the word that gets you. Every speller will tell you that, and uh, the word was stachios. It is a sugar derived from the Chinese artichoke, and of course, I didn't know there was such a thing as a Chinese artichoke, and I hadn't studied that word, and I... I didn't get it right, but you want to give it a try, Logan, uh, on the spot? Stachios? Well, let's try it. Stachios, a Chinese. Uh, what's the language of origin? Greek. No. Good question. S T A C H I O S. It's a good guess. You got the first five letters right. It's S T A C H Y O S E. And I. Over the years, the, the current competitors in that contest will ask me what I got out on. And sometimes when I tell them that's the word, I get a little bit of a sneer. They think that was far too easy a word to go out on. Uh, <laughs> but, of course, as they'll also tell you once you go out, you feel like you know the rest of the words for a while until reality sets in. And uh, it was a great experience then. It was um, really a, an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. that I never would have had. Our family didn't have a, a lot of money. My father was disabled at the time, and in the, the final runway of his life, he died at 51. Um, so that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it was a great experience at the time, and I never would have thought I'd still be associated with that contest almost 30 years later. It's been a real blessing. How do you prepare for a spelling bee? I'll tell you, it's um, they have a great research staff at ESPN. And uh, again, you talk about working with people who are really good at what they do. From the very first year with the ABC folks, they had the, the researchers who work on figure skating and the Little League World Series. Uh, and I'm still in touch with some of those folks, really, really talented people. And they would do a lot of the dirty work of compiling biographical information on about 300 competitors. This year, they actually added about 200 more to the mix. So there are more than 500. But they have, you know, who their parents are, what they excel in, awards they've won. If they've been in the competition before, how many times did they have a brother in the competition? Uh, what's their favorite food? What's their favorite book? What words did they get last year? I mean, they're just a, a fount of information. And my job is to uh, cull that and find the things that are going to be relevant, that, that might come into play at some time in the competition. And so that's the research you do. But I, I think the, the tougher part of that assignment is being able to analyze the words as they come up, because you don't know that ahead of time until that word pops up there. And I think that's the bigger challenge. You have to have all that preparation, just like a football game. There's a lot of stuff that you're going to have that is going to go unused. But being able to bring it in at the right time in that competition 
with the timing of it, which is probably the biggest challenge of calling that event, the timing of when to talk and when not to, when you don't know when the speller or the pronouncer is going to be talking. But uh, it's it's a thrill every year. Um, worked with some really incredible people and just continually amazed by the future we have in this country with all these bright young minds. I find this utterly fascinating. <laughs> uh, what do you do? How do you ad- adjust the the moment when somebody is eliminated or something negative happens? You know, you want to adjust it, whether you're at the pros, you're in college or high school, you know, you're a little more harsh at different levels of competition. But these are elite competitors, but they're also 10 to 12. How do you, how do you, for lack of a better word, deal criticism when they miss the word? Yeah, you know, that that's something that I hope that I've gotten better at over the years. I'm sure the, the first few years I did it, uh, maybe I was not where I needed to be on that threshold. And in your zeal for breaking down the competition, you may be a little too critical of someone. Uh, so hopefully over the years, I, I've been able to get a better feel for that. And it's real easy to root for these kids. So I don't think it comes off as insincere if you stay really positive about what they've done to get to that point. I mean, this competition starts out with over 11 million competitors worldwide, and they're the cream of the crop. So I, I think staying positive, giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe pointing out, well, if they had had a little longer to think, they might have considered this. Uh, I think that's a way to approach it. But ultimately, I have to explain to the viewer who may never have been in a situation like that, what it was that knocked them out and and where they maybe could have done better. So ultimately, I do have to be critical, but hopefully constructively critical and uh, encouraging and positive. And one of the neat things of doing that event so many years is seeing those young folks grow up and see the incredible things they're doing now. I mean, you've got some of the top physicists in the world. You've got doctors and lawyers and uh, just about every profession. That's why uh, the pronouncer of that competition, Dr. Jacques Bailey, a great guy, I heard him refer to spelling as a gateway skill. He said, if you put in the the preparation and the study that's needed to be successful in that event, you're going to be prepared for just about anything. And, uh, you know, I get a kick out of my best buddy at the B I was in way back in 1990. He and I are both in sports. I do what I do. And uh, he's a fantastic author, worked for the Baseball Hall of Fame for many years, has a new baseball book coming out now. And uh, that's another, I I think, side benefit of that uh, situation is being friends with a guy named Derek Enders, who's one of the biggest UTEP minor fans I know for what that's worth. That is Fantastic. <laughs> we should probably go back to your sports career, sports casting career, and get away from the spelling bee. Although I could probably talk about an hour and a half just about the spelling bee. But we'll go back to when you were getting out of Syracuse and you got your first job in TV, I believe at CBS 47. You kind of had a moment where you were disappointed for getting turned down for another job on the East Coast, but now look at it as a look at it as a blessing in disguise that you got used to start your path in Fresno. No question, Logan. Again, it's that theme that I see when I examine it, that God's plans are better than mine. I really did want that job in Syracuse. It was the local ABC affiliate, the number one station in town. My college roommate, Jeff Rawson, was working there. I'm sure you've seen him on the Today Show since. And uh, so I thought I had an in. You talked about networking. I went over, I interviewed. I thought I had a great chance. 
but they hired a guy who is more established in town and went there and did a great job. And I wasn't the best candidate. Uh, so I graduate and I'm coming back to California and I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And little did I know that the next three months were the final three months of my dad's life. I mean, he was my hero in so many ways. He was a guy that people would come to, to, to figure anything out. He was a, a, a welder, had a machine shop, had a few inventions, had this mechanical brain that he could solve just about any problem. And he was also a man of great faith. And that's what inspired me the most in the final 10 years of his life is he saw skills and ability and strength slowly fade away. Uh, his faith only grew stronger and he inspired a lot of people in the process, including me. And I wouldn't have had those three months with him had I been in Syracuse. So that was a huge blessing. Uh, and an ongoing blessing. Once I got to Fresno, started working at uh, the CBS affiliate, had a lot of great experiences there uh, as a news reporter, as a producer, doing sports, really got a crash course in the industry and in some of the skills you need, which was beneficial for me. But I also hosted a job on the side, a cable show on Olympic sports at Fresno State. And that was great as a uh, on-ramp into the market to get to, I'd grown up in the market, so there was that, but I didn't know that much about Fresno State track and field or swimming and diving or soccer. And I got to know through that show, and I also got to know my wife, who was working on the show as a Fresno State student and uh, who I had a small world connection with. My grandfather and her great-grandfather were actually in medical practice together in my hometown, and I'd known her family all these years but never met her. And I wouldn't have met her without that turn of events. And we've been married 18 years, have two beautiful daughters. And so there's no question in that case that uh, where I was disappointed not getting the job in Syracuse, ending up in Fresno and the timing of all of it, God's plan was definitely, without question, way better than mine. You've mentioned the importance of the influence of your father several times. You know, going back to when you say, I think I could be a sportscaster, and he says, get on your bike and go. You know, what was it about him that helped to make you, build you into the person who could eventually become a good person, a good sportscaster? Well, we probably don't have enough time to go through all of it, Logan, but uh, I had phenomenal parents, um, parents who I think made their priorities very clear, um, who, you know, I had three siblings as well, and they're a big part of this, but uh, our family life, as I look back, was really good for me to help me understand what mattered, um, that, you know, there are things that matter more than money, than a job, than fame, you know, just to understand how fleeting life is, how we have an opportunity in our time on this earth to impact others, to make a difference. And my parents were difference makers. Um, you know, I, you talked about the spelling bee. I wouldn't have made it to Washington, D.C. if my mom didn't find a way to speak my language. And she would bribe me for study. She would say, for every hour you study, I'll buy you a pack of baseball cards. And I mean, you're talking about the late 80s. Baseball cards were huge. And I was really into it. So that was a no brainer. And I never would have made it there without, I think, that insight on my mom's part. And uh, my mom, you know, raised four kids and even did some homeschooling with some of us for a while while my dad was uh, on his way, you know, toward a slow tenure process toward passing away. So she's a hero in my mind with her strength. And uh, I'm just very thankful that my parents encouraged us, pushed us hard academically, uh, shared their faith in God and helped us develop our own. And really, I, I think the bottom line, you go back to that story with get on your bike and go, 
there was an encouragement there, a constant encouragement that, you know, anything is possible if you believe. And that sounds like a cliche, but in our home, that was a reality. And there's no question in my mind that made a huge difference. And since you got me riffing on my childhood, I'll share one more thing, Logan, that I think has to do with my uh, my love for radio. Um, we didn't have a television in my house growing up, as crazy as that sounds. I'd go to my grandpa's to watch games on TV every once in a while. But at home, I listened to a whole lot of radio. So my childhood years, I was listening to to Hank Greenwald, one of my favorites on the radio, calling the Giants games. Greg Papa at the time did a phenomenal job with the Warriors on the radio and guys like Lon Simmons on the 49ers. I mean, those were the voices of my childhood, not to mention the national games. And it was all radio. And today, I think we have a lot of folks growing up and they don't hear a lot of radio calls. And I think that's changed the radio industry. But uh, I just feel blessed to have heard the guys I heard and get a sense for what a descriptive radio call sounds like by that time in my childhood. And I probably had a keener understanding of it because my folks didn't have a TV in the home. So, you know, it's those little things that sometimes make a big difference. <laughs> How did you go from CBS 47 to picking up the initial side gig of baseball play-by-play for Fresno State? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that was a neat thing, too, because uh, baseball – I guess, you know, I still play a lot of basketball with my buddies, and I enjoy that. But in high school, baseball is probably my best sport. Our team won a section championship my senior year in high school. Not that I was a big part of it. But baseball is the best radio sport. I always had a love for baseball. And when I was in high school, Fresno State had one of the best teams in the country. I mean, 1991, they're in the College World Series with the College uh, Player of the Year, Bobby Jones. And that was a big deal to anyone in the San Joaquin Valley. Los Banos is about an hour away from Fresno. So then I end up working in Fresno and I meet Bob Bennett, the coach who had coached a couple College World Series teams and a number one in the nation team. And I, I covered a few games as a TV guy. And I had a friend. You talked about networking. And, and I'm understanding some of this because of the questions you're asking here, Logan. I hadn't thought about these things for a long time. But uh, in my college years, I'd use the summers to do internships. And I interned at uh, one summer. I interned at KMBR in San Francisco, powerhouse radio station. And uh, the NBC affiliate in Fresno, KC24, working with a couple local TV guys named Oren Winnick and Paul Swearingen. And when I ended up working in Fresno in TV, uh, Paul Swearingen was still in town. His wife later became the Fresno mayor. Paul and Ashley are good friends to this day. Uh, But Paul was doing the Fresno State games on the radio. And he had me come on a couple games with him. And then eventually he asked me to fill in for him for some games. And as it worked out, going into the next year, he was taking a new job, couldn't do the games. And the station was interested in having me do the games. I had to get special permission from my TV bosses to do it. And I know, you know, as a young married couple, it did create uh, some time issues for us. I was fortunate to be able to take my wife on a lot of those trips before we had kids. Uh, But that was something that I didn't necessarily see coming, that the timing worked out great on. And uh, it was a great thrill to be able to work with Coach Bennett in his final two years, a Hall of Fame coach, and then Mike Batesill ever since, including that national championship. And uh, to end up calling ball games with guys that I used to watch play for Fresno State and had looked up to, um, just uh, an immeasurable privilege. And, And there's a connection to that baseball program that I'm really proud to have. The tradition of that baseball program is more rich, I think, than any other sport at Fresno State. And the alumni, the stories, um, 
just the impact that people have had because of their association with that program. Um, it's been a, a great thing to explore and a great thing to be a small part of over the years. And I believe it was, I, I don't remember what year it was, but I, so I'm originally from about 10 minutes away from Omaha and grew up going to the College World Series. And nice. I remember just going crazy when Fresno State won the national championship as a 31-loss team. Take us just through the roller coaster of covering and one of the biggest underdogs of all time in the NCAA to win a national championship. Just absolutely unbelievable. And, and there's a word that gets thrown around way too much, but with that team, it actually fits. Because here's a team that really was limping to the finish line. They won the conference championship, but their final regular season weekend, they're on the road at Sacramento State, and they blew a seven-run lead in the ninth, lost on a walk-off grand slam. And at that point, they're two games over 500. And they had a, a little bit of a turning point on the team bus after that. They come back. They win the last two games of that series. It was a bizarre situation, Logan, I'll tell you. And, and you get a laugh looking back at all the things they had to go just the way they did for this story to happen. And I had a chance really to understand that later when they asked me to write a book about that. And, and you looked back and you examined, yeah, that really did happen that way. And that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But the tournament that year for the WAC was in Ruston, Louisiana. The funny thing was Louisiana Tech was not in the tournament. It was a situation where the host was predetermined, but you had to qualify. And so they're hosting a tournament they're not even in. And the way the WAC was set up geographically, all the other teams in the tournament are flying a long distance to play in Ruston. So it was really bizarre. And I think a lot of the coaches were saying, why do we have to go all the way out there when they're not even in it? And Fresno State goes there. It has some really close games. They swept through it and wouldn't have got into the NCAA tournament otherwise. I mean, their RPI, even after the WAC tournament, was 89. So they had no chance at an at-large bid. But they play their way in. They get sent to the toughest regional in the country. And kind of the funny thing on a personal note there was I did not do the regional. I was uh, asked... I was doing the spelling bee on ABC and was asked to stay half a day later to uh, to speak at the banquet they do for the spellers every year. And I didn't make it. I wasn't going to make it back in time. So uh, when Fresno State made the regional, we actually had somebody else do the ball games. And the way it worked out, I was really thankful. It was a guy named Bill Woodward, who had been a basketball and football voice for more than 30 years, had done baseball in the past. And he went down and called those games in the regional which no one expected Fresno State to win. They're a four seed, and they've got you know Long Beach State, the Big West champion. Cal was down there, and San Diego was a nationally ranked team out of the WCC. But Fresno State finds a way, a, a gritty team. They even got blown out in the next-to-last game of that regional, but they end up winning, so they go to the Supers. And here's my wife at home with two young daughters, and I'm telling her, oh, we're going to Tempe, Arizona, Arizona State, it was 38-3 and at home this year. There's no way Fresno State can beat the Sun Devils in Tempe, so don't worry, I'll be home soon. And the other, the other drama that was unfolding for me personally is I had decided to quit my TV job and uh, go out on my own with a, a TV show on World War II veterans, a series I'd started on local TV. So I'm kind of thinking, okay, as soon as the baseball season's over, I can really get going with that. And uh, again, God's plan's being better than mine, and the Bulldogs having their own plan 
They somehow knock out Arizona State, a team just littered with major leaguers. Brett Wallace, Ike Davis, Mike Leake, Jason Kipnis, the list goes on and on. And these scrappy little bulldogs with a, you know, a ragtag bullpen find a way to get it done. And they're going to Omaha. And it was so surreal. Uh, Fresno State hadn't been there since 1991. The fans had been waiting. And now the town was coming alive. And you're going to Omaha. And again, it's not about me, right? I didn't do the first game in Omaha either. They're playing Rice University, <laughs> a former conference foe. But I stayed behind because it was my grandfather's funeral. He was uh, another hero to me, a decorated World War II veteran, received a silver star for rescuing 26 guys from burning tanks. And I had to stay home for that. Again, never expecting Fresno State would be in the College World Series. So I, I swooped in and took over after one game. And again, the great Bill Woodward got to do that game. But from that point on, uh, my buddy Ray Ocanto and I calling the games in Omaha at Rosenblatt before they tore it down and watching Fresno State become the darlings of Omaha and to see 20,000 people every day rooting for Fresno State of all people against these blue bloods of college baseball and to see a team that was banged up, that was shorthanded, that had lost its best player and All-American pitcher Tanner Shepherds, just grind it out game after game after game and defy all the experts. It's one of those stories I think has inspired countless people because it is the ultimate anything is possible moment and you can make it happen. And that team did. The College World Series in Omaha is the best sporting event that nobody knows about. It really is, uh, especially when it used to be at Rosenblatt, like you said. Uh, I just I love the atmosphere there. What was your take on it? Incredible atmosphere. And the people of Omaha are so neat. One, one of the cool experiences I had which I, I wrote about a little bit in the book, but I actually found myself in the uh, Little Italy section of Omaha where they have the cobblestone streets and they have a little Italian bakery called Orsi's. And I was there to interview the guy who founded it, who had been a prisoner of war in World War II, Claudio Orsi. But I, I am talking to some of the folks and I didn't have a rental car that week, so I'm walking everywhere. I get to talking to one of his top guys and he takes me back into their kitchen and he shows me on the wall, they've got a whiteboard and every single employee uh, is in a pool for the College World Series. And they've got the team they picked and all that. And this guy was so excited because he had Fresno State. He ended up giving me a ride back to the hotel after that. <laughs> Such a kind guy. But, you know, wherever you'd go, going to church there in Omaha with one of the Fresno State players and having the pastor engage him and she was a, a North Carolina grad and she was rooting for Fresno State against her alma mater because she had met this guy just going anywhere around the city and seeing what a big deal this was and seeing how Fresno State had become America's team and then later on hearing the stories from you know folks back home and how they experienced it but that energy at Omaha college baseball usually isn't played in front of that many people um, you know, it's that time of year. The weather can be crazy. A tornado can roll in. A big rainstorm can come in. It can be really hot and the ball's just flying everywhere. And there was one game, the second game of the championship series against Georgia ended up 19 to 10. So it was that era of college baseball. And, and it was just a lot of fun. And to see those players step up to the moment, play so loose and free and do what nobody thought they could do, because why not? We're here. Let's win it all. You've mentioned a couple times your show where you talk to World War II veterans. You know, explain to us a little bit more in detail what that is and how that came about. 
Well, the show uh, now is called Hometown Heroes. It's a radio show that's syndicated uh, mostly to West Coast markets. Uh, but it really it started on local TV. And at the time, we had an hour weekend newscast. And as the sports guy, I was responsible for filling about 16 minutes worth of content, which if, if you know guys in local TV sports, that's a whole lot of time. I mean, today, guys are getting two or three minutes on a sports hole in a newscast. But with an hour-long newscast, I had 16 minutes, and, and I'd fill it. We did a lot of local sports, a lot of live stuff with high schools and the college teams, and it was a lot of fun. But I had had this thing on my heart about my grandfather. When I was a kid, um, I was playing hide-and-seek, and my brother caught me uh, trying to get out of this closet of my grandfather's, and my shirt got caught on something. I turn it around. It's a big frame, and it says in bright red letters, a newspaper from Chicago. It says, Chicago and saves 26, and it was about my grandfather the action that earned him the Silver Star. And I'd never heard the story. I didn't know what happened. And, you know, I thought I'd love to hear that story someday and record him talking about it. And, I, and my sister did a school project one time on him. And there was a teacher in our hometown who had a, a big uh, a big intention of preserving the stories of World War II veterans. And that made an impact on me. So as I'm doing local TV and you're getting tired of the shootings and the stabbings and all the things that are getting talked about, I pitched to my bosses. I said, why don't we tell some World War II veteran stories? And I'll interview my grandpa and a few other guys. And let's do a series on it. And I'll never forget. He said, no, no, nobody wants to hear a bunch of old guys talk. And I got shot down three or four times. And finally, I don't recommend this, but finally, since I had all that time to fill, I decided, you know, I'm just going to do a few of them and see how it goes. Maybe he'll like it. So we went out and shot him. I put him together, put him on the news. My grandfather was one of the first guys I interviewed. And what I saw was really transformational for me. I saw what it meant to the families. Every interview I did then and, and everyone I've done since, probably over a thousand of them, uh, you see what it means to the family. They're hearing stories they've never heard before. You see what it means to the veterans, how cathartic it can be. And it was just a really, really powerful thing. And the feedback from our viewers was great and it won awards and it was so fulfilling, I couldn't stop doing it. So I kept doing it on television, that's what I told you. I was ready to, to leave my job and try to make that a syndicated show. Little did I know, God's plans being better than mine, that at that same time, Fresno State would win the College World Series. They would ask me if I wanted to take over football and basketball, too, inheriting that role that, that Bill Woodward did such a great job in for 35 years. And, and that all worked out. So I didn't have time to do the TV version of it, but I had started a radio show kind of as a partner to the TV feature and have kept that going ever since. So that's been on the air since 2007. Um, and I, I never really wanted it to be a, a business. And I, I wouldn't say it is. It's more of uh, a labor of love and in some ways a ministry. And it's turned into so many neat things uh, in my life and, and see the, what it's done for some other people too. And the stories I've heard, Logan, it's unbelievable what these men and women went through. And it's been kind of satisfying, too, having that sports eye to be able to intersect with a few sports figures, too, uh, who were part of World War II, who, who their lives were interrupted, too, and their destinies were changed. And uh, just the, the privilege of meeting all those people, of understanding what they did, of knowing that freedom isn't free and these folks paid the price for the rest of us. Um, it's just been really informative and life changing. And uh, that's why I keep doing it. Uh, on this show, we've talked with broadcasters about interviewing, you know, tough coaches at times and to talk to World War II veterans about their stories. 
in my experience, n just knowing a few people who have been veterans, people don't like to talk about their war experience. They kind of keep it repressed. How do you get these people to talk? What are the interview skills that you use? Well, and some of them don't want to talk and they're not going to. And, and I think that's the first step. If you approach someone and he's not willing, you respect that and you thank him for his service to our country. And, and you don't try to twist his arm because it's his story. He's the one that saw things he never should have had to see and dealt with the death of his buddies when he's a teenager and, and had all these experiences that are tough to go back to. Uh, but when and, and sometimes I'll hear back from a vet two or three years later and say, hey, I'm ready to talk now. One of the neat things has been the honor flight movement across the country. And, and uh, it was amazing how that got started in our area, too. And, and there's even a Tim Tebow story in there. But uh, I, the honor flight experience has opened a lot of them up and helped them share more. But as far as engaging them, I, I think a big thing, Logan, and this goes for any interview, but especially with that generation, it's amazing how far it can go to look someone in the eye, to give them a firm handshake and to listen a little bit and show that you care. And I think when they know that you're sincere, uh, that you're genuinely interested in what they did and that you're appreciative of the sacrifices they made, I think it becomes easier and easier for them to engage and open up. And I know that I know there's a lot of veterans who I spent an hour or two with and tried, and I probably didn't come close to scratching the surface of everything they really did. But there's some others who have really shared some incredible things, sometimes for the first time. And when you see a, you know, a 90 plus year old Marine breaking down into tears as he remembers what he did at 17 or 18, or sometimes even 15 for guys who lied about their age, uh, it gives you a lot of perspective on your life and things that really matter and the things that we can so easily take for granted. So it's it's just been an immeasurable privilege to have a chance to meet all these folks. Give us an example of one of the stories that has really uh, made an impact on you. Oh, man, there's so, so many, Logan. Uh, you know, even with my grandfather's story, interviewing him that first time, and I said, uh, you know, what were you thinking? When everyone else was getting out of there and you kept going back in to pull guys out of these tanks, what were you thinking? He said, well, I thought I was going to get killed. And I said, I'm glad you didn't. And he laughed and said, yeah, you wouldn't be around. And that's a real sobering thought. I would have never been born. And with these folks I've met, uh, so many of us are in the same spot. You know, when, when Robin Roberts and I worked together a few years on that spelling bee, her father was a Tuskegee Airman. And if he had been killed overseas, she never would have been born. There's so many of us who can look back at that. So that impact, I think, is universal. Uh, Louis Zamperini, of course, has been on the big screen and the subject of a bestseller, and everyone knows his story. He was a real treat to interview, just an amazing energy. Uh, there's so many. The ex-prisoners of war you meet, guys who survived the Bataan Death March, you understand the extreme circumstances they were placed into, how they held hope out. Uh, and story after story, they all have those moments where you just say, wow, that's incredible. W one of the guys I appreciated the most because I got to know him a little more was a guy named Dr. Stan Lindquist. He was a medic in Europe. Uh, he volunteered to go into a minefield to pull out some guys who had been blown up by a mine. He went with another guy. The other guy triggered a set of mines. It went off. Dr. Stan lost a, a good chunk of one of his legs. He lost an eye. Uh, he was blind for months. But he came back, and he'd been writing these inspirational messages back home to be shared in a newsletter the whole time. 
uh, under a pseudonym. They found out his real name. Uh, that was a big story in itself. But the real impact, it was pretty cool. He comes back to Central California, was a psychology professor at Fresno State, uh, but came from a, a ministry background. His father had been a church planter and a pastor. And he had this idea that as a psychologist, maybe pastors and missionaries needed counseling too. So he started something called the Link Care Center. And since then, in the more than half century since, it's uh, an organization that has provided counseling to more pastors and missionaries, I think, than any other organization in the world. So you talk about the impact exponentially that that has when a guy was so close to death and lived the rest of his life without an eye. And his son jokes about watching dad pop the eye out and wash it in the sink. Uh, but he's a guy who comes to mind because of how his experience in the war colored what he did the rest of the time and the heart and compassion he had for people. But that's just one example out of hundreds, the incredible things that these folks have done since the war, uh, the, ins the inspirational value that you can find in their stories and the value they place on freedom, on life. Uh, it makes you question how you view those things yourself. And that's what keeps me energized to keep meeting these folks all over the country. And that's been the the blessing of traveling so much for sports, Logan, is on these sports assignments, I find time to meet veterans in those areas. So in the, the tiniest little backwater towns all over the country, I've met some of the most incredible World War II veterans. And uh, it makes you expect to do more of it. They're dying off. But uh, I, I know you're in the Twin Cities right now. I've got a football game this fall there, and I'm looking forward to, to meeting a veteran or two there, which I've never been before. So it's just... For me, it's kind of an endless adventure, an ongoing mission, and uh, this expectation that there's going to be more there than I expect. And I know no matter how much time I give, I end up receiving a whole lot more. So what are your thoughts then on people using you know, war terminology in a sports setting, in their broadcast, like saying these two teams are going to war? I know I personally try to avoid that, but a lot of people use it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think I've become more sensitive to that because of all the veterans that I've met and and understanding that the veterans today coming home with PTSD and what they go through. And it's the same thing our vets were going through 70 years ago. They just didn't talk about it the same way. Uh, so, yeah, being a little more sensitive to that, I probably don't use it as much. But what I will do is make parallels. Um, and it's been neat to see those two areas intersect. When we started the, the honor flight in the Central Valley, Fresno State was a great partner. They welcomed that first flight of guys to a sold-out football game when Derek Carr was the quarterback and Fresno State was nationally ranked. And got to tell the story about a former Fresno State football player who was killed in World War II and honor his family. And to see these guys, 90-plus years old, get a standing ovation from 40,000 people uh, it gave you goosebumps. And we get that same feeling every time when we bring back the honor flights. But that's been kind of neat to see the areas where a sporting event and a chance to honor veterans intersect. And Fresno State has been really supportive in that. And even some of the other schools in the Mountain West, I've had the privilege of connecting some of them to veterans in their areas I've met. And it, it's a neat thing because what else in our culture brings more people together at the same time than sports? And what better venue or opportunity to honor the people on that ultimate team, that team that has fought for and secured our freedom for a couple centuries now. Um, that's been a real neat way that I didn't expect where those two arenas that I'm interested in have kind of intersected. 
we could probably talk about this literally all day, but we should move on to something else because <laughs> you, you just have you're a renaissance man. So much stuff in your story is interesting, but you donated a kidney to a friend, and that's one of my mother-in-law actually just did that like a week and a half ago, and I what? saw everything that she went through, and. I just don't know if I could do it. I like to say I'm a pretty generous and uh, helpful, willing to help person, but I don't know if I could literally give an internal organ. Uh, just tell us that story. Well, I'll tell you what you can do, Logan, and something everybody can do that's real easy um, is sign up to be an organ donor. Uh, you know, if, if everyone signed up on their driver's registration to be an organ donor, the need for living donors would really go away. Um, because things happen, you know, people have accidental deaths. And if you've checked that box, those organs can save multiple lives, not just one. So, so there's a little plug for the national organ donor registry, which I, I think really is important. But in my case, my father received a kidney transplant back in 1990. It gave him eight extra years of life. Uh, it obviously changed our family's life. I saw the impact. He got some of his life back and I had that time with him I wouldn't have had otherwise. So it's always been something that mattered to me. And in fact, when when his transplanted kidney started to fail after seven or eight years, which is about average for kidney transplants, especially then, I wanted to give him one of mine then. And he and my mom and their wisdom said, uh, no, that's not a good idea. You're too young. Uh, it won't make a big enough difference with everything else going on in his body. And we're not going to let you do that. And again, God's plans are better than my plans because, I, you know, I didn't want to see my dad die. I wanted to do what I could. Uh, but fast forward 20 years um, and a friend of mine who I'd gotten to know, who I respected, who'd done a lot of great things in our community, a guy named Mike Alexander. He ended up in need of a kidney. And another friend of ours, a guy named Tom Summers, a former Bulldog uh, baseball and football player at Fresno State, had volunteered to give him one of his. And I thought, man, if Tom's willing to give one of his in his early 70s, uh, why am I not thinking about that in my early 40s? And so I started thinking about it. And I talked to my wife and, and she gave me the green light. I prayed about it and said, yeah, let's see what happens. So I went in and got tested. And lo and behold, Mike and I were a perfect match, which is pretty unique, pretty rare. Uh, but then there were a few roadblocks along the way. He had some complications where he wasn't able to have the operation. I'd hoped to do it in the offseason because between the end of baseball and the start of football, I have some downtime, would have time to heal. That didn't work out with his timing medically. Uh, and the way it ended up working out, my bosses were kind enough to, to give me a couple basketball games off. Uh, we did it in basketball season. I had the real easy part, Logan. I mean, uh, you have two kidneys that perform way better than dialysis. They say hooking up to a dialysis machine is about 15% as effective as those microscopic filters that you have in your kidneys that filter the blood in a way that, that science can't, that, that created kidney is way better than the artificial one. And we have two of them and we can live just the same on one. It doesn't alter your lifespan. They say it reduces your kidney function a little bit. But your lifespan is the same. And the big thing that got me, Logan, was in California, where I live, they say that the wait for a deceased donor kidney, if you're waiting for some your name to come on the list and, and have a match that way, is eight to 10 years. And 80% of the people on that waiting list die before they ever get a kidney. So if you talk about motivation, um, 
that was it. And I knew that I had a chance to help my friend and I really put it in God's hands for the timing and whether or not Mike would be able to do it. It all worked out. The surgeons were great. The nurses were great. And again, the unexpected thing of all of it is kind of, again, what just happened with you sharing the story about your mother-in-law. I've met so many people with their own kidney stories. And it's amazing to see how many lives that issue affects. It's something that most of us are not aware of on a daily basis. So I've been ed educated and more informed about it since then. And uh, it was just a great privilege to be able to to share that with Mike and to see how his life has changed. Right now, he's got his uh, two grandkids out from Wyoming for a month and a half and having the time of his life. And uh, it, it was just it was real neat to get to know his family better and just thankful that God worked out all the details. And I was back playing basketball within a month, so I, I've got no complaints. So you've mentioned earlier in the show that you, uh, once you, that you started off doing baseball for Fresno State, went on to doing uh, football and basketball. And I don't think there's a whole lot of broadcasters who do all three of those sports because it gives very, very little downtime. You're pretty much going from probably August to uh, when does the college till June potentially right. when do you have your downtime and how do you balance you know spending time with your family with that travel schedule you know that's a good question Logan and I think that's an important question for any broadcaster to consider I mean everybody's priorities are different uh, but but I have a real clear understanding of what I hope my priorities are and, and I remember back in Syracuse you know, Bob Costas comes to campus and speaks and people are raising their hands and asking their questions. And that was the question I asked him at the time, kind of the question that you just asked me, because, you know, at the end of the day, how many games I call and the people I get to meet, that's not going to matter nearly as much as the kind of husband I am and the kind of father I am. And, and I want my family to be a priority, uh, to be the priority right after my faith in God. And uh, I feel really blessed. I feel, Logan, like I have the best job in the country for me, for for the way I'm wired, for where I want to be, for how I want to spend my time. I really feel like I have the ideal job right now. And and again, that's God's plans being better than mine. But my bosses are really supportive. Um, they have me doing the things that are important to them and that matter, but not a lot of things that don't matter. And uh, when you have that streamlining, I think, where you're able to spend your time on the things you really care about. That's something you don't take for granted. So I, I have some great bosses. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to do some other things for ESPN and call some games for them here and there uh, because of the great relationships I've formed through the Spelling Bee. Just some awesome people who've been really supportive. But uh, and I've thought about would I want to do that more? And maybe there will come a time. But right now, doing football, basketball, and baseball at Fresno State, if you think about it, I've got more than half of my games at home. My friends who, who do travel on national assignments constantly, you know, almost all their games are on the road. And so that's something I value. And, uh, you know, I, the flexibility of doing games at night and not having to work during the day every day, that gives me time to be at my daughter's school, to be involved there. And uh, it's worked out pretty nicely, but it requires communication. And there are times where, yeah, you're, you're going to be gone. And that's tough. This coming year, we have a basketball game on Thanksgiving Day. I don't think that's happened before. I've called a few bowl games on Christmas Eve, and that can be challenging from a fr uh, family perspective. But my wife has been very understanding. Uh, I try to take my kids on some road trips every year and open their eyes to some other places and situations. 
And uh, I think if you approach it the right way, you can make it work for your family. And I sit back and, and marvel at some of how my friends in the business who have a lot crazier schedules than I do, how they work it out with their family. But all of them seem to. And uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that's one of the most important things, especially young broadcasters have to consider. You've also mentioned a lot that obviously your faith is very, very important to you. How did you develop that part of your life and how does it affect your broadcasting career? Well, I think it starts with my parents um, and they that was a priority to them. But I, I think everyone has to, at some point, figure out what they believe and then own that. So I think my parents gave me the opportunity uh, to get to know who God was and uh, how they saw the world and big influence and met so many great people who've been powerful examples of that. And, you know, I. You don't have to hit people over the head with your faith all the time. I think you can understand that people have different perspectives, but uh, the the core of the Christian faith is uh, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So you have a, an opportunity every day in sports casting to meet people, um, and, and how you treat them makes a difference. So if you sh show the same respect to everyone that you come in contact with and you really try to put them first— Ultimately, I think that's going to be the most powerfully persuasive example of what Christianity could be. So that doesn't mean you have to go around quoting Bible verses all the time, which I might do to, to friends if they need encouragement. And I do that often. But uh, as far as on the air, I'm sure there are references that I make um, at times. But I try to respect you know, other people's beliefs and uh, be aware that people feel differently. While at the same time, uh, I am who I am. And I believe what I believe. And, and there's no question in my mind that God has a plan for my life that's better than anything I can come up with. And he's proven that to me time after time after time. I mean, these questions you've asked me, I look back and, and I see his hand in directing my life more than the plans or ideas I came up with. So that's part of who I am. I'm not going to pretend that's not the way it is. I'm not going to take the credit for myself. I'm, I'm going to give it to him because that's where it belongs. And um you know, if that makes some people uncomfortable, I hope that they'll approach me about it and talk to me about it and understand that it's sincere. And um, yeah, I, I guess I'll wrap up with that. But I think that's a challenge for some folks and maybe a lot of guys approach it a little differently. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's about an integrated person. And if you really believe something strongly, that's part of who you are and it's going to affect everything you do. So um, that's certainly my case. All right. So we'll finish up with some of the questions that I ask just about everybody on this podcast, the ones that I particularly enjoy, are what are some of your broadcast horror stories where something went horribly wrong during a broadcast with equipment or location, or it, it could be literally anything that was mortifying at the moment, but you just laugh at now? Oh, boy. How much time do you have, Logan? And, and you know that's going to happen. Homeless and unemployed. Those... <laughs> I have, I have nothing but time. <laughs> uh, those things are inevitable. They're going to happen, and I'm sure there's a lot more than I'm even uh, bringing to mind right now because I probably blocked some of them out. You know, I remember a, a TV live shot early in my career. There had been actually a minor league hockey game in Fresno, where one of the players, you believe it or not. One of the players from the visiting team, I believe from Alaska, 
had called the police department and pressed assault charges against one of the Fresno players for a hockey fight. And so this was a big story. And I actually had to to stay up late and get up early and go out and do a live morning show hit. I forget if it was outside the jail or where about this story. And the uh, hockey player in question who was accused had a multisyllabic last name that uh, I hadn't heard before that day. He was new to the team. I, I wasn't familiar. And uh, I got in the middle of that live shot and I said his first name and then I got to the last name and I honestly couldn't remember what it was. And I think I gave it two or three tries and then gave up. <laughs> so on live TV, things like that happen. And, and it was embarrassing, but it was also, I, I think, educational. You learn in those moments um, you know, what you don't want to do. Um, hopefully that the next time you're not going to panic. And uh, again, don't draw extra attention to a mistake when you make it because things are going to happen. People have said a lot of things about Vin Scully over the years and what a wonderful broadcaster and human being he is. And one of the things I appreciated about him in maybe his last decade as an announcer, that if he made the occasional slip up, he would work it into a plus for that broadcast. He would he would laugh at himself or it would take him off on a tangent that added some texture to the game. You said, boy, that guy's a master. Even when he said something he didn't want to say, he turned it into uh, an added feature of that broadcast. So I think you can learn a lot through your mistakes. Um, my first year of doing the National Spelling Bee on TV, I actually invented a word, and I didn't even know it. Um, I found out from a newspaper column that someone sent me that when they had a dispute and they were looking at the dictionary, I actually said they were examining the dictionary. And that word is not in the dictionary. And I hadn't even been aware that I said it until they pointed it out. So I guess there's a case for listening back to your work and watching it back. Uh, but I'm sure there's a million other mistakes that I've made, but uh, hopefully I've learned from them and, and you can look back and laugh a little bit about it now. You, know, you mentioned you can listen back and get better. What do you do at this stage of your career as a pretty accomplished broadcaster to continue to improve? Well, I think, you know, preparation is so important, especially in the sport of football, because there's so many players. Uh, and there's so much history with all these teams. So I think I'm, I'm constantly trying to find other ways that I can prepare to maybe add a different layer of detail uh, to maybe distinguish yourself. I'm sure a lot of guys do this. But one thing I take pride in is finding out the high school mascots for everybody on these teams, because sometimes there are some really colorful mascots out there that uh, that you'd never hear about. I mean, there's a high school in, in Washington State called the Papermakers. What's the story with that? And if you Google that, you'll see the image of that actual mascot. It's pretty colorful. Um, but, and that, I think, just adds a little extra texture in a broadcast that maybe not everybody would do. And if there's someone listening from that place, all of a sudden they're fired up. They're like, wow, he knows my high school mascot. So there's probably a lot of guys who do that. But that's one example of trying to find something else. Um, one thing that I think that's helped me at Fresno State we started a feature many years ago. Again, I'm sure a lot of people do this, but this date in Bulldog football history, and you go back, you know, to the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 20s, and you find out some incredible stories, how different the sport was, how different the world was. And there's always details there you never would have imagined. So that's been a fun thing. Uh, and I think just listening back, because I'm sure some of your other guests have, about the level of description, um, did you say the play the way that you really should have said it? Did you miss a detail? 
How is your energy level? Uh, when I've done some national stuff, uh, a mentor of mine, Ed Placey at ESPN, one of the things he tells me is announce angry. He thinks I sound too nice sometimes, and, and maybe that's the baseball in me. But if I'm on a football game, he wants a little more of an edge there. So he'll say announce angry. So I, I listen back to see how enthusiastic I am or or how fired up I am, and am I bringing the appropriate level of energy to the play? So I think you can always stay on top of those things. And if you're not listening to yourself, you're not going to have that gauge and that feel. Uh, so I think that's a real important thing to do. Prep process, as you mentioned, is the the other lifeblood, networking and preparation, the two lifebloods of play-by-play broadcasting. Walk us through your preparation process for a football game. Well, for a football game, you know, it's going to start pretty early. Uh, listening to both coaches' comments at the start of the week, um, I think one thing that helps me is going back, if it's a conference opponent, going back to the previous year's notes that I had and keeping those on file and seeing what's changed since then. There might be some some bio nuggets you can pull over. Um, you know, I, I, it's important to read through those thick releases you get from every program because the sports information directors put a lot of time and effort into that, and there's always something you can glean there. And, you know, if you're not taking advantage of that stuff, you're really insulting them. So I think that's an important thing. And then I think kind of like we were talking about with listening and asking good follow up questions. I think finding those details within a team that that makes you ask a question of yourself. You know, if you're reading through a coach's bio and you see that he played, you know, six man football in South Dakota, uh, there's probably a story there that's going to come into play. So what can you dig up about that? Um, and you know, so pretty much through the week, I'm working on my board. I'm making sure I, I know the pronunciations on game day. I'm going to go back over that with the SID or, or probably more often the actual announcer for that team who has to say that name on a daily basis. Um, I think those things are important. And one thing that I've learned over the years is to stay up on the rules. And that should be one one I think for all of us, but every year before the season starts, I try to open up that rule book and look back through it and make sure I'm not going to be caught off guard in a game by a situation that I didn't anticipate. Uh, So I think that's an area of growth for a lot of us to stay on top of that. Um, And aside from that, I think one thing that sometimes we forget about, so much attention is given to stats and having everything at your fingertips. Uh, But what about your camaraderie on a broadcast, the chemistry you're going to have, and what kind of time investment do you place on spending some of that time with your color analyst, with your sideline guy, and just making sure you're on the same page and have a plan of attack and have a rapport with them? I think for the listener, that makes such a difference. It's a much more enjoyable broadcast to listen to uh, when those two or three guys are working in unison as opposed to three guys with their own separate ideas. I want to follow up on that because you've worked with a large number of color analysts what is the fastest way to build well obviously there's no fast way to build chemistry but what's the fastest way to be able to fake chemistry in a initial setting of the first time that you meet a color commentator well i you know i don't know if you can fake it too much i I do think you have to be resilient i mean especially when you're working someone with someone for the first time there are going to be things that happen. There are going to be times where maybe you talk over each other or you try to set them up and they're not ready to jump in. I think you have to let those things roll off your back and maybe make a mental note. Hey, later, let's circle back to that so we can talk about it 
and figure out how we're going to handle it next time. But I think just getting to know people, again, when you asked about the World War II veterans, you know, looking somebody in the eye, giving them a firm handshake and listening a little bit to show that sincerity, to understand that you care and try to understand the world through their eyes. Um, I think when someone knows that you get it, that you get them, that you have an idea of, of maybe what they've been through in their life, the investment that they've made, the experiences that they've had, I think that goes a long way toward working together as a team. And uh, yeah, I, I have worked with a lot of analysts. It's been a real blessing. And even, you know, on that spelling bee deal, I've worked with a lot of hosts and it's the same thing, whether it's Robin Roberts or Tom Bergeron or, you know, Sage Steele, Kevin Nagandi, all these folks, they're all different personalities. They're all wired a little differently. So that time off camera to get to know them, to get a feel for their timing, for their energy, um, for how they're wired. I think that's going to make you work better together. So it's just people skills, really, Logan. It's anything you'd use in, in any profession in everyday life that maybe we take for granted or maybe seems a little too simplistic. Uh, in my experience, those are the things. It's being genuine and sincere that's going to lead to better chemistry on the air. If you have a day off or a bye week and you want to tune into a broadcast, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to, both on a national level and at a more local, regional level around Fresno below the radar? Yeah, you know, there's so many people that come to mind when you ask that. And in this day and age, I mean, you can hear so many different guys because of the Internet or satellite radio and all those things. Uh, the guys I grew up with were great. California, I mean, has been a gold mine for radio talent. You know, I heard Vin Scully and Chick Hearn growing up. Uh, Hank Greenwald was my favorite with the Giants. I mentioned Greg Papa and, and Lon Simmons. I'll never forget Lon's call of Steve Young's uh, rumbling and stumbling touchdown run against the Vikings. Uh, so many memories come to mind. But these days, um, you know, one of the guys that I enjoy listening to it and he doesn't do it like everybody else. And I think that's an important thing today is to be yourself, to not be a cookie cutter and try to sound like everyone else and say everything everyone else says. I'll tell you, Ted Leitner, who does the football and basketball games for San Diego State and the longtime voice of the Padres, he has a really unique style that uh, I think in broadcasting school somebody might bristle at. But if you listen to Ted, he's really, really entertaining. And so I get a kick out of listening to Ted, and he has an unbridled passion and an exuberance that is hard to match. So I get a kick out of that. There are other guys in this conference over the years that I've really appreciated getting to know, and I admire their work. Guys like Ryan Radke, who was at Nevada, Rob Portnoy, who's at New Mexico now. Uh, the San Francisco Giants have a great broadcast crew. Dave Fleming is a friend from way back and so proud of the career he's had. And, and you know, he's a great example to a lot of young broadcasters, and he's really smooth on the air. As far as bringing excitement to a baseball game, very few are better than John Miller at that. And and you never know what's going to happen there. So that's been a kick. But I could go on and on and on. You know, I mentioned Hank Greenwald, who, who was a mentor, who has become a good friend. And his son, Doug, is doing AAA in Fresno, has for many years. And you never know what you might hear from a, a Doug Greenwald broadcast. So I, I enjoy that. But there are countless guys, Logan. And, and that's what's neat about this industry. So many people approach it in different ways, but they have a passion for it. They invest their time and energy in it. They bring their uniqueness to it. And that's what I like to listen to. All right. Before we send you on your way, I just wanted to, if you, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give your hometown heroes show a little bit of a plug. Where would they be able to find it 
uh, either on the air or online? So most of our affiliates are in California, um, but uh, online it's at hometownheroesradio.com. Heroes does have a second E in it as the plural. So hometownheroesradio.com. And uh, you can go back over 500 plus episodes there. Sometimes there's a, a little video clip associated with it, some photos of the veterans, and many of them are, are no longer with us. But uh, it's been amazing to see how many stories there are out there and how many unique aspects of World War II most of us have never even heard about. And, and I'm continually learning more and more. And the bottom line, the big thing is just meeting incredible people who have done just sometimes ridiculous and really remarkable things for the sake of our freedom. So uh, from that perspective, I'm looking forward to meeting a lot more of them over the years. And the more we can tell these stories, Logan, I know it's about 70 plus years ago. It's way deep in the past. But what I've seen is that it can also impact our future. It can change our perspective. It can inspire us. So my hope is that the more people who hear these stories, the more we'll consider how we look at the world, how we examine our freedom, how we look at life. And uh, so if, if people want to check that out and get a feel for it, hometownheroesradio.com. All right. And if anybody wanted to reach out to you, how would they do that? Uh, well, my website, that website has my email on it. You can contact me through there. I'm also on uh, Twitter. It's uh, P356Leffler, L-O-E-F-F-L-E-R. And, uh, and I always enjoy hearing from people. Um, and that's, you know, you talk about hometown heroes. That's where all the ideas come from. They come from the listeners. I mean, I get emails and phone calls. They say, you need to go talk to this person. And I've met so many incredible people as a result of it. So I love those kind of emails and those contacts. And uh, even in the broadcasting world, great to see folks develop their skills and grow and progress in this industry. And I love the camaraderie of it. Uh, you know, it can be such a competitive and cutthroat thing. But I think we're all better off when we root for each other and when we're excited about the opportunities that other broadcasters get. And uh, it's been neat to see those opportunities arise for a lot of friends over the years. Once again, we are visiting with Paul Leffler on the Say the Damn Score podcast. He is the voice of Fresno State football, basketball and baseball and the spelling bee. And Paul, thanks so much for coming on. Good deal, Logan. Enjoyed it a lot and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please subscribe to the show by going to saythedamnscore.com and clicking the big subscribe button at the top of the page. I also value your feedback in any form through iTunes reviews, emails to saythedamnscore at gmail.com, or on the social media platform of your choice. Also reach out to the guests via social media that come on this show. They love to hear feedback as well. Thanks again for listening, and the next time you're on the air, remember to say the damn score just a little bit more.